Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 108, Dr. Robert M. Bowman, Jr. on Triadic New Testament Passages, Part 2. Dr. Robert M. Bowman, Jr. is a well-known evangelical apologist. He has earned an M.A. in Biblical Studies and Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary and a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies at South African Theological Seminary. He's taught graduate courses in Apologetics, Biblical Studies, and Religion at Luther Rice University and Biola University, He's worked with various apologetics organizations and has spoken at hundreds of churches and some three dozen conferences and debates. Since 2008, he has served as Executive Director of the Institute for Religious Research, which you can find online at irr.org. He also blogs at religiousresearcher.org. He's published about 60 articles and 13 books on apologetics, religion, and biblical theology. His books include An Unchanging Faith in a Changing World, 1997, Faith Has Its Reasons, 2nd Edition, 2006, Putting Jesus in His Place, 2007, and What Mormons Believe, 2012. But he's here again with us this week to continue the conversation about his 2013 article entitled Triadic New Testament Passages and the Doctrine of the Trinity. Dr. Bowman, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Thanks for having me back. Dr. Bowman, last week we discussed the famous end of Matthew's Gospel and also some methodological issues, such as not using any of these texts individually as proof texts for the Trinity. I was hoping this week to get more into some of these interesting triadic passages that you discuss. Why don't we start with some passages in Paul? Many of the triadic passages that you cite are from Paul's letters. So here's one from Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Also in Titus 3, we have Paul saying the following. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This Spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Dr. Bowman, there is a triad in each of these, but it strikes me that God is explicitly one of the three. I don't see how these passages particularly would support the idea of the three of them together as one God. Do you see them as suggesting a tripersonal God? I do see them as pointing in that direction, though not in that vocabulary. In other words, uh, the, the formal doctrine of the Trinity is a systematization of New Testament teaching that uses the language in ways that overlap New Testament language, but in some ways is, is uh, more developed theologically in terms of uh, the way it's articulated. But, but yes, I would. And just for an example, to go to uh, the, the Titus passage, 
of course, there's there's a number of things going on here with the the parallel references to God our Savior and Christ Jesus our Savior, which is you know from a Trinitarian perspective at least suggestive. But you don't have to go back very far to the end of Titus two, which of course the chapter division is a modern you know or medieval uh, innovation. Uh, so just just a short distance back in the same passage where Paul refers, as I would argue, and other scholars have argued refers to Jesus Christ as our great God and Savior. So, in fact, Titus is you know, one of the epistles uh, in which we see the language moving in the direction that we later find more formally and systematically employed in the doctrine of the Trinity. But yes, I, I certainly understand that you know, the normal way that the New Testament uses language is that normally uh, applies the title God to the Father and uh, normally applies the title Lord or other uh, titles, of course, as well to Jesus. But the Titus example uh, illustrates the fact that that's not even a hard and fast distinction within the New Testament. Let's listen to another famous passage from one of Paul's undisputed letters. This one is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To teach is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Dr. Bowman, it seems to me that Paul here is emphasizing the unity of believers. There's one Spirit, one Lord, one God, not directly making a theological point. Do you think he's presupposing the equal divinity of the three or that they're one God? I think presupposing is a good term because, as you're saying, the passage is not directly or primarily focused on you know, presenting a, a doctrine of the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not explicating or expounding on the doctrine of God or the relationships among these three called Spirit, Lord, and God. So, I, I, yes, but I think it is implicit in the text, it, it, and Paul is presupposing that these titles are designations of deity, and that's how he's using them without arguing at the point or or even expounding that particular point, we see him using them in that fashion in the passage, yes. Another famous passage is from his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, where he says this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. In your article, you see an allusion here or an echo of a passage from Numbers chapter 6, where God is portrayed as saying this, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the Israelites. You shall say to them, Yahweh, bless you and keep you. Yahweh, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. Dr. Bowman, how do you see this passage in number six as relating to the one we just heard from Second Corinthians? Well, Second uh, Corinthians speaks of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And number six, if we translated the uh, the text using Lord, which is, of course, what is uh, found in the New Testament quotations and allusions to the Old Old Testament, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. So we see in number six, the Lord being gracious to his people. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we see that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is gracious to his people. It is the grace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. There are other allusions to number six in 2 Corinthians I discuss in the article, such as the Lord's face shining on Moses in 2 Corinthians 3. And so this is not a just sort of a, a random or, you know, perhaps accidental similarity, but I would argue that it reflects, pun intended, I guess, Paul's sort of drawing on this tradition in Numbers in his epistle. So yes, I think the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that phrase in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, most likely is an allusion to number six. So it's not a quotation but it's maybe something in the back of his mind the readers would expect to hear divine grace being something that comes from God, and here divine grace is being granted by Jesus. Yes. In this statement at the end of Second Corinthians forms what in literature is called an inclusio with the opening statement in the epistle where Paul speaks of grace and peace coming from the Father and the Son, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that sort of brings us full circle to where we started in the epistle. And yes, in the early Christian movement, which was really a form of Jewish faith, and rooted in the Old Testament, as Christians call it now, in fact, partly because of 2 Corinthians 3, we do see this assumption or presupposition of Jewish faith that grace, favor in matters of eternal import is something that comes from God. And this is applied in 2 Corinthians both to the Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we sometimes find Paul in the same epistle referring to the grace of God without, you know, explicitly making reference to Jesus. Here we find him making reference to grace coming from Jesus Christ without explicit reference to God the Father. So the functionalities are interchangeable. I don't claim that the persons are interchangeable in the sense that they're not the same person, but uh, the Father and the Son, uh, Jesus Christ, are equally uh, treated as sources of divine grace for the people in Second Corinthians. And this opening of Second Corinthians that you mentioned is a very typical opening for Paul. He basically always mentions or sends greetings and blessings in the name of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus. Yes, I think there's maybe one epistle where he doesn't do do that, uh, but in almost every case he he does. He mentions both of them uh, in his opening salutation and uh, uh, opening prayer, if you want to call it that, where he prays or or expresses the hope that that they will receive or continue to receive grace and peace uh, from the Father and from Christ. And usually the formula is grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in 2 Corinthians and, and many of his other epistles.
Dr. Bowman, a couple of the triadic passages you discuss mention three, but the third is not the Holy Spirit, but rather God's angels. Let's hear these. The first is from 1 Timothy 5, and the second one is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I warn you to keep these instructions without prejudice, doing nothing on the basis of partiality. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Dr. Bowman, in these passages we see a triad, but maybe not the one that we were expecting. Do you think these passages should make us cautious about reading too much into groupings of three that include the Father and the Son? Uh, It should make us cautious not to argue that merely because you've got three mentioned side by side, these are necessarily, you know, three divine references or three divine persons. Yes, it's not simply that there are three mentioned together or that two of them happen to be divine, although that, you know, that's at least creating a, a possibility that the third is as well, but it, it's more than that. You have to look at beyond simply the, the fact that you've got, you know, the, there's a, a one, two, three pattern there. But, you know, it, it's not as if somebody who believes in the doctrine of the Trinity, I mean, let's suppose for the sake of argument that the Apostle Paul was a firm, avowed believer in the formal doctrine of the Trinity. That wouldn't mean that he couldn't say something like 1 Timothy 5.21. In other words, there's no rule that would force him to avoid making any statements where he had the Father, the Son, and the angels uh, mentioned together in this kind of fashion. So I'd caution those who do not accept the doctrine of the Trinity not to use a text like 1 Timothy 5.21 as some kind of a simple proof text against the doctrine as well. Uh, So it sort of works both ways. What I would say is this. We've got uh, over 80 passages in the New Testament where there is a coordination of Father, Son, and Spirit, or God, Christ, and Spirit, or some similar, you know, obviously parallel kind of uh, reference there that constitutes a pervasive pattern of uh, theological thought throughout the New Testament. In contrast, we have maybe, you know, a handful of passages, uh, eight or so, referring to God, Christ, and the angels, some of which are a little bit more elusive or, uh, you know, loose uh, triads, if you want to call them that, than, than the First Timothy 5 one. And so there is no pervasive pattern of Father, Son, and angels as there is with uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so one has to start with that observation and then again look at the texts individually and see what they actually uh, say and how they develop whatever it is that the author is saying with regards to the Father, Son, and Spirit, or the Father, Son, and Angels, and look at what they actually say. What we don't find, for example, is in triads of Father, Son, and Angels that uh, the angels are joined with the Father and the Son as the source of divine blessing, or any anything like that that would put them on the same level or treat them as having interchangeable functions of, that are uniquely uh, belonging to deity as we do with a passage like 2 Corinthians 13, 14. 
But I agree that uh, these texts are cautions against uh, maybe an oversimplistic use of these triadic New Testament texts uh, as proof texts for the doctrine of the Trinity. One has to look beyond or deeper than just the fact that they're mentioned together. Yeah, I think I agree with all that. And I think what you have to do for each text that has a triad is just ask the question, what is the author doing? Why are they mentioning those three? It seems to me in the first passage here, 1 Timothy 5, Paul is essentially invoking witnesses. He's charging them in the sight of these. It's almost like swearing by something, but it's it's not quite the same thing. But he's saying these are watching you, so take care that you listen to me. Yes. And there is a, a host of angels in addition to God and to Christ. And then the thing that jumps out at me about the Second Thessalonians passage, it's an unusual one, but what really strikes me about it is that Jesus has angels when he comes back in power. He's described as being revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So yeah, again, no, no direct theological point. But you're going to understand these in the context of your broader theology, as we discussed last week. Sure. I do think the, the, the fact that Christ is going to be coming with his angels uh, to bring the divine judgment should evoke some kind of, <laughs> what shall we call it, holy reverence toward Christ. Uh, it, it's it's an image, it's a, it's a picture that's being drawn there that is meant to cause us to think of Christ as a divine figure in some fashion and uh, executing divine wrath. You know, they're his angels. Uh, you know, all of these things uh, certainly push you in that direction. Now, of course, there are different ways that one can flesh that out in terms of the rest of one's theology, but. I hope that at least we can agree and emphasize that in the New Testament, and that passage is an example, Jesus Christ is represented over and over and over again as performing divine functions, having a divine status of some kind. You know, it's pervasive. Uh, perhaps we could, uh, even with our differing theologies, agree that attempts to extract a merely human Jesus, just a kind of a great teacher or a political messianic ruler figure or something like that, uh, to, to try to find that needle in the New Testament haystack is a lost cause. It just seems to be everywhere you turn in the New Testament, Jesus is treated as someone who um, who is divine. And again, exactly how he's divine, uh, whether he's always been divine, you know, some passages may address that more uh, overtly than others. Well, yeah. I mean, it depends how generous you're going to be with the term divine. I mean, a a biblical Unitarian like me emphatically agrees that the risen and exalted Jesus is greater than the angels and in charge of them, that he'll literally judge the world, that he'll literally come back. And so course yeah he can have angels in his command he's divine in the sense that he's performing divine functions functions that he's been assigned by god yes i'm really thinking at this point of um, answering somebody like a bart ehrman who attempts to find a development in the new testament from a merely human jesus to one that does perform those divine functions and i'm i'm uh, pointing out that i think we can probably agree that the attempt to uh, impose that kind of uh, uh, evolutionary 
interpretation of the New Testament is kind of a lost cause. You have to pick and choose even within a single author's writings to try to make that work, and it just doesn't seem to hold up. Yeah, I'd, we'd be on the same side against Bart Ehrman. I, I see it as flat. I mean, the theology and Christology seems basically to be the same to me through all the books, just a, some difference of terminology and emphases and so on. But I mean, the underlying disagreement we would have would be whether only a being with a divine nature can perform these functions. Sure. Well, and there are different parts of the puzzle, if you will, or different aspects of the question. For example, whether the person of Jesus Christ is a human being who was exalted, and that that's the that's the totality of the of the answer, uh, or whether he was a divine person who pre-existed his human life. And some of the passages that we've talked about, though their focus or primary, you know, sort of teaching point may not be to explicate the idea of a pre-existent Christ, appear to assume that implicitly. And, and I would mention Galatians 4, the first passage that you brought up, as an example of that, where God sent his Son, and then he sent the Spirit of his Son, and of course he sent the Spirit of his Son from heaven. And the, the structure and, and tenor of the passage, and along with Romans, 9, Romans 8, 3 is a similar one, seems to speak of the Son as somebody who existed as a divine person, distinct from the one called God there, and who was sent from him to be a human being born of a woman and to redeem us. Uh, and then once that was done, the son, uh, of course, uh, we know from other places in Paul, uh, goes back to heaven, and then the Spirit is sent. And so you have, that's kind of the New Testament story in a nutshell, whether you're looking at uh, Luke or John or Paul, they all seem to have that basic storyline, and making sense of that is what the Doctrine of the Trinity uh, attempts to do. Yeah, and pre-existence, that's an issue that divides Unitarian Christians I mean, one issue there is does sending, the language of sending presuppose that the sent being doesn't come into existence but moves from one realm to the other. There is a passage where I think John the Baptist is spoken of as being sent, but... John 1.6. Yes, yes. And we probably would not agree that humans pre-exist generally. Right. But that's another can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to back up and sort of think about a big picture issue here, and it's more a point of psychology than it is theology. It seems to me that for some reason, human beings prefer groupings of three. So a group of three seems like it's easy to remember. It feels complete somehow. 
I mean, think of scholarly book titles and papers. It's, you know, X, Y, and Z. That's often a subtitle or the title of one of those things. And you can cite examples of threesomes or triads from ancient religions and philosophies. But when I was reflecting on triads in preparation for this podcast, I was reminded of one of the old reruns that I used to watch on television. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Yes, it's Superman, strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. And who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. So when we hear that intro to the old Superman TV show, there's two triads mentioned. They mentions three of his superpowers, and then at the end there's three values that he's fighting for. Dr. Bowman, do you think it's true that we have a preference for groupings of three, that we just find it neat and orderly? And if so, what would you make of that, if anything? Well, they're very common, uh, absolutely. What we see in the New Testament are uh, triads. We sometimes see dyads, I guess you could say, where we see, for example, we mentioned the salutations, uh, grace and peace, there's two from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not always the way it's done. Uh, we do have triadic salutation in 1 Peter 1, 2. John uses three qualities or uh, blessings that come from the Father and the Son in one of his epistles. But the usual pattern is two in the salutations. Uh, so there are places where you see texts that people have sometimes described as binitarian. Or, or at least uh, there's, a, there's a, a duality there of the Father and the Son, or God and Christ. There are a lot of, of these triadic passages, as I mentioned. But the fact that we can, and I can think of lots of threes in all kinds of places, uh, but that isn't an argument for the doctrine of the Trinity, nor is it an argument against it. Uh, the, the fact is we've got not only a lot of these passages where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are spoken of together, but the way they're spoken of together is what I think really counts. As I mentioned in our, our previous uh, discussion, the article that we're, we're sort of keying off here that I wrote called Triadic New Testament Passages and the Doctrine of the Trinity really is written from the standpoint of having already established in other ways from the New Testament that there is one supreme creator, sovereign, Lord God of the universe, and that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ is the Lord God, uh, and yet distinct from the Father somehow. Many people, even after they've seen the evidence for that, say, well, but this Trinity thing, uh, you know, why, why three, and where are you getting that, and is there anything in the Bible to support this threefold view, or is it just sort of superimposed on the New Testament from the proof text here, then ripped another one from over there. And so the the 80 or so uh, triadic passages are cited to show that this threefoldness is actually a pattern woven throughout the New Testament. But it isn't a proof text in the, you know, simplistic fashion that sometimes you see it used. 
Dr. Bowman, one of the texts you discuss mentions Father, Son, and Spirit, but this time they're embedded in a list of more than three. This is in Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another, in love making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Dr. Bowman, it seems to me that the point here is just to emphasize the unity of believers, uh, mentioning a big list of things that they have in common. Is that what you see in this passage? Well, that's the immediate point, is the unity of believers. Uh, But this point is explained in a particular way that we need to take seriously. And we could apply that to other issues besides the doctrine of the Trinity. For example, the fact that there is one baptism, I think, precludes certain potential theories about how baptism should be done or, you know, cautions us against the idea of of treating baptism in a way that's divisive rather than recognizing the unity of believers who have been baptized as followers of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at everything that the text says and take it seriously and try to make sense of it, even if the main point of the passage or the immediate concern of the passage is something other than that than what we might you know be seeing when we look at it more carefully now in this case we have these references to the one spirit the one lord and the one god and father these jump out at us for a couple of reasons one is we've seen it before <laughs> mm-hmm. we've seen it many many times mm-hmm. the other is that all of the other terms are unambiguously and indisputably non-personal terms. Hope is not a person here. Faith is not a person. Baptism is not a person. Body is not a person, although that it represents a group of persons. I'll bet you money that some of the Gnostics argued that those were all eons or something, but keep going. (laughs) You could be right about that. And I I would, I I think I'm on safe grounds for, with most of our listeners to to assert that is something that's pretty self-evident. Yes, let's stick to the realm of the sane, okay. Uh, So when you keep that in mind, those two points in mind that we've seen these this pattern before and many times and that the other terms are clearly non-persons then the one spirit one lord and one god and father jump out at you as as having some kind of a significance in coordination with you know with one another and as i've argued before we all understand one Lord here to refer specifically to the person of Jesus Christ. And of course, one God and Father refers to God the Father, who is someone, in some fashion at least, distinct from Jesus Christ. If we follow that along, and if the term spirit can be used, as it clearly can be used in reference to persons, the natural interpretation, the one that isn't straining, I would argue, it takes the spirit in this passage also to refer to a divine person. So, is this an attempt by Paul to lay out a systematic doctrine of the Trinity? Of course not. It's not what he's doing. Does it presuppose or imply that he is thinking along lines that are well represented by the doctrine of the Trinity? I would say yes, it does. 
I think that one thing we have to realize in looking at the New Testament is that unity was a constant and pressing problem. They didn't have any one institution. They didn't have the small C Catholic tradition. They didn't even have the New Testament all assembled together. And there were these far-flung little churches that had been founded by different apostles and other workers. And there was just a constant temptation to, you know, we're better than you because we were baptized by Paul or whatever. Right. And this comes up constantly. And so it, I, I call these kind of passages unity slogans, like just trying to really rub their face in what they have in common and try to head off any possibility of superiority. I mean, Christians still do this, you know, my pastor is better than yours. He's, you know, he's a really awesome guy or my denomination. So that's what I see. I, I don't know. I think the point about spirit could be, could be argued both ways. But to connect this to the previous point, I kind of think that the most popular unity slogan is the mention of, now I haven't counted this up among your 80, maybe I should do that. You, you give a nice chart in your article of 80 passages that mention the three uh, triads, uh, usually Father, Son, and Spirit. I wonder, though, if I count them up, if the most popular would be one God, one Lord, one Spirit. That just seems like a handy way of it's one God, one Lord, and one Spirit that you've been given. And yeah, there's all there are other ones too, sure. He goes with a bigger list here. But when you're giving a unity slogan, there is no set. It could be one thing in common, two things, three things. Sure. Or here, what is it, seven things? It yeah. just depends on kind of what you're in the mood for or how hard you want to pound the table. Yeah, well, what you're saying, I can agree with totally, and I don't think it in any way contradicts or uh, conflicts with what I was saying. I agree with you that the, the main point here is to emphasize the unity of believers, and he, in fact, begins the list of seven ones with an explicit reference to their unity as the one body. So that, that clearly is the focus. I agree with that. I just don't think that that precludes observing that when when Paul does this, he speaks of the Spirit, Lord, and God and Father in a way that, once again, uh, seems to reflect that he is thinking about the divine in this threefold way. Dr. Bowman, thank you for talking with us. My pleasure. This week's thinking music has been the track Scattered Knowledge by Revolution Void. You can listen to that whole track or download it at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinities podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. 
Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.